All right, before we start, uh, let's just bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you open with all of our baggage, with all of our insecurities, with all of the things that we find comfortable in our Christian walk. But yet we come with a heart desiring to know you, a heart desiring to know what your will is for your people, to know how we fit in to your big picture and the part that you expect us to play in the world and in the culture that we live in. So teach us this morning hour, O Father, that we may be transformed and that we may be set apart and that we may be who you want us to be. And we pray this in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hopefully this all works. Um, one One of the natural things that happens with movements, with organizations, with groups, with, with churches and denominations in general, is that the longer they're in place, they tend to develop their own language, a language that only they understand. And sometimes, though, over time, as enough time goes on, what was a commonly understood language becomes a little bit misunderstood or things have been passed on from generation to generation with the expectation that the understanding or meaning stays the same. But because, and and I I love the way that Brother Scott brought it out yesterday, but because it's based upon things being caught and not taught, then what happens over time is there becomes a lot of things that we take for granted or assumptions that we make that we all understand. And that's kind of, in many ways, I believe what we see in this topic. I think if we asked or or took a poll of of what it means to be set apart, we would throw in other terms like, well, it means to be separate, it means to be peculiar, other Christianese or biblical words um, that we would use to describe it. But if we really actually begin to to narrow down what that definition was and, and ask different people, we'd find out that there's this huge range of ideas, of opinions, of traditions, of practices with each one of those things. Because we've caught those things, depending on where we grew up, the family we come from, the culture we started in, the church we grew up in, or that we're in now, that, that those things have, have been caught, but not necessarily taught. Um, and so it's important for us to take a look at, at what Scripture tells us about what it means to be set apart, about who sets us apart, how we are set apart, why we are set apart. If we don't understand those things, then it really becomes nebulous what it means to be, quote-unquote, set apart. Again, I'll wait for the slowly people are kicking in, just kind of like this morning, which, to me, the fact that there takes a little bit of a time lag before people get it means that we haven't done a really great job on teaching what it means to be set apart means that there's a wide range of ideas of what it means to be set apart. This picture, in many ways, as much as it's a cartoon, and and it was actually a Mormon cartoon, but I I put in our Nazarene word instead of Mormons. Um, This picture reveals some of the areas in life that we typically associate with being set apart or separate. For example, their appearance. 
They're obviously set apart in their appearance. They're set apart in their direction, the direction they're going in their lives. They're set apart in many ways in proximity to one another. Although they happen to be in the same area, they're really not close to one another. We can make some inferences about each group of people and say they're set apart in their morality or in their values. We could obviously look at the two of them and and make an assumption that they're set apart in their denomination, provided they both go to church. So we can make a lot of assumptions, and and, and the pictures show us kind of what it means to be set apart in one way or, or the common view of what it means to be set apart. And in some ways, if we ask the question, well, why are we to be set apart? The picture kind of reveals some of those common views as well. You know, we're set apart from the world because we don't want to become like that. We, we want to stay like this. We need to be set apart from the world because we want to be a light to them. Um, we want to be set apart from the world or from those that are not like us because, well, we have children and, and we want to make sure that they're not being influenced by those things. But in any of those, those scenarios of why we are set apart from those groups of people, most of the reasons, if we think about it and if we're honest with ourselves, are it's all about us. We're set apart because we don't want to be influenced. We want to set apart because we don't want our children to be influenced. Even we want to set apart because we want to be a light to them. It's about us being a light to them. Is We've made the set apart being about us. Instead of, instead of setting apart because of him and because of God. So is this what God intended? Is this what God purposed when he said you are to be set apart from others? Is this what it means to be set apart in our appearance? Apostle Peter says that let our adorning not be that which is the outward adorning of plating of the hair and wearing of jewelry and all of these outward things, but let it be the inward man of our heart. So we, t- we tend to kind of focus on the first part of it and say, and there's other denominations that focus on the first part of it. Don't let it be all of these things. And make sure that you're, you're, we're in a uniform dress code. And that's a, there's obviously a clear biblical component to that, uh, that we should focus on, on our inward character more than our outward appearance. But what is, a, what is Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter talking about? What is he referring to? He's saying that women's true beauty doesn't come from what you see, but comes from the inside. And that's what we should be looking for. That's what we should be exhibiting to others. That's what needs to come preeminent or above. And this, in many ways, is the same thing that Samuel was chastised for when he went to anoint the second king of Israel. He went looking and saying, Eliab is, he's big, he's strong, he's powerful. Look at his outward appearance. This must be the next king. To which God said, no, 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 you, you missed the point. Because it's not about a stature, it's not about the muscles, it's not about the looks. It's about the character of the heart that sets us apart. And are there some, are there some dangers or some cautions of overemphasizing or focusing primarily or a lot on this being set apart in our outward appearance. Where can that lead to? What can it tend to? We may, we may judge 
or less, look less favorably, favorably, anyhow, upon those that aren't looking like us because we put an emphasis on that. So if you don't look like us, mm, then maybe you're not as set apart as I am. I'm more set apart than you are. And that then often creates cliques or groups, even within a subgroup, a subgroup within a larger group, right? We almost, we almost create a, a 3-H club, those that are humble, holy, and, and just somehow more honorable than others. So we have this special set-apart group that's like this. And it often creates then separation from others, right? What happened to Apostle Peter when he was in Galatia? And Apostle Paul came to visit him. Well, he had separated himself with the Jews and, and looked like the Jews and hung around with the Jews and did the Jewish things because he was afraid of his reputation. And he had to be chastised for focusing on that outward things instead of focusing on the inward things that make us all, all common. And that's where Apostle Paul, in writing to Corinthians, makes that point, where do we look after the things that are the outward appearance? If they are Christ's and we are Christ's, then we are one. And therefore, we're not to be set apart. And if we think about this in a, in a bigger spectrum, and if we just skip back one chapter in, in the book of Corinthians to chapter 9, we, saw, we see Paul going a little bit further with this. And for example, if a woman is trying to reach the prostitutes, she's not going to go dressed like a prostitute, but nor is she going to go dressed like the Amish, because neither one is going to reach them. A person that's a young man that's living out in California and wants to reach the surfers isn't going to go in a suit and tie. Nor are they going to go to those places and say, why don't you come to my church? Come here to hear the gospel. No, they're going to take the church to them and bring the gospel to them where they are in order to reach them so that they become, all, by all means, become all things to all men in order to reach some. And that's the concept of, of being able to balance this set-apartness between our appearance versus what is the character of our heart, the inner character of our heart. And that's really what, what is, is being focused on. So then maybe we're not... That's not what's meant to be set apart, is to be set apart in our appearance. Maybe it's to be set apart, as Mr. Durkheim says, in our church or our religion, in how we do it. Right? So what sets us apart as a church or as our religion? Our church building may set us apart. It may look different. It may be in a different location. Um, our practices or our traditions, of course, as Nazareans, our food sets us apart, right? I mean, it's all about the food. Some of our practices, some of how we do it, that's what identifies us as a church or what we say sets us apart as a, as a church. Maybe it's our four-part singing that we are, I hesitate to say proud of, but to some degree that, that we emphasize. This sets us apart. We, we have four-part a cappella singing. Who does that anymore? As if that's what sets us apart. Or maybe it's, and oftentimes, well, what, what, do you, what do you do as Christians? Well, we don't do this, and we don't do that, we don't do that either. Well, that's not part of what we can do either. We talk about what we can't do instead of what we do do as, as Christians. And, and again, these are not necessarily negative things. These are positive things, but, but is this what we're calling our set-apartness? We have a family atmosphere that, yeah, is not common in a lot of Christian churches out there. 
great. I mean, the fact that we can come together and, and fellowship where I can go to visit any of our churches and, and I can stay with a family I've never met before and, and the bond is incredible. Absolutely, that's a blessing that we have within our denomination. But is that what sets us apart? And who are we trying to be set apart from? And again, maybe it's our morals or our, our values that, that set us apart um, that way. And, and previous presidential or vice presidential, um, actually, I don't even know, vice presidential or presidential nominee, Mitt Romney, talks about that, that our moral certainty and having clear standards and, and spiritual ideals is what sets us apart. And I think, yeah, to a certain degree, that, that does set us apart from, from the culture. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ says, you know, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. But it's not, we tend to focus on, well, the city on the hill. Yeah, see, it's set apart. It's in a separate place than everywhere else. But it's set apart not behind a bunch of trees. It's set apart so that it can be seen and people can be drawn to it. There's a big difference between being set apart so that nobody can get there to being set apart so that people can get there and are drawn to and want to be there. That's a totally different set-apartness. So what should set us apart as a church then? What does Scripture tell us? Our influence in the community should set us apart. The fact that we are involved in the community and are impacting the community and that people know us because of our involvement as a, as a light in our, in our community. They should know us by our voice and our stand on cultural issues. Does the community know that? Do they know that we don't agree with the latest stand that came out by our government or by our city or by whoever? Or do they not even know that we actually exist or we're just another building somewhere? They should know us by our involvement in kingdom work. It's one thing to say we do charitable deeds. That's great. So do a lot of other organizations out there. But that doesn't set us apart because they're not doing kingdom work. But if we are, that's going to set us apart because we're involved in God's kingdom and the furtherance of that. Our love for the lost and for sinners is going to set us apart because that love is, is a godly love that can only come from one place and isn't going to be seen in other, anyone else other than Christians. And we should be seen and, or set apart in our love for the body of Christ. Sometimes we set up ourselves apart and separate ourselves from the body of Christ. And we think that that's being set apart. But we've just cut off the hand from the body and said the hand is good enough by itself. We are part of the body of Christ. We ought to love the body of Christ. We ought to be seen working together with the body of Christ. Because by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another within the Nazarene denomination. That's what it says. Or if we put that on to the end. By your love one for another within the body of Christ. That sets Christians apart from the rest of the world and from every other organization out there. We've talked about some of this, but maybe we're to be set apart in proximity. Maybe we need to, the Bible says, we're to come out from among them and be separate and don't touch the unclean thing. This is Scripture. Does 2 Corinthians 6.17, does that mean that we're to have no contact with the people of the world? Are we to cut loose from all of our worldly friends who aren't Christians? 
Or maybe we should just become monks and live a reclusive life separate from everything else. Maybe we're never supposed to mingle. Maybe only Christians should do business with Christians and don't do business with other organizations and, and companies that are not Christian. Is that what that means? How far do we go with that, if that's what it means? And how do we reconcile that verse with the words of Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer, which said, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, God, but that you would keep them from the evil. And then he continues, as you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So then what does 2 Corinthians 6.17 mean? Well, we need to find out what the wherefore is therefore by looking at this verse in proximity to the other verses that are there. I think we can all probably quote this verse off by heart. This is just a few verses before our, our 617. What's the common view of this verse? What does it apply to? Marriage. Well, that was pretty fast. But it means more. Thank you. But, but it is interesting that we can so quickly jump to the application without actually studying it because this is something we've been we've caught and not really been taught. And that's a big distinction between those. What's at the end of this sentence, or at the end of this phrase, I should say? It's a colon, right? It means there's more to come. He's going to now begin to explain what he means by being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so the next phrases are going to be his explanation, one after the other, of what it means to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And obviously the concept of this unequally yoked means there's a big dissimilarity. When I, I googled the term unequally yoked just for images, and there were some images from, I don't know, India or somewhere, where you had a donkey yoked with a camel. Pretty obviously unequally yoked because there's a huge dissimilarity between the two of them. They're getting it to work, but not very well. But, but it, it, it's implying that there's this big dissimilarity between two groups um, in that way. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean or imply that there can be no connection between those two things. And so, what is, and again, what does he mean by unbelievers? Is this a group of people or is this something behind the group of people? So let's look at each one of these terms. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? The word fellowship in the Greek means to share or to participate. Um, and then unrighteousness is those things that are illegal, that are violations of the law, that, are, that, is, that is really wickedness. So not sharing and participating in those things that are illegal and violations of God's law or violations of the moral law of the land. And then he goes further, not just to share, we're not to share or to participate in those violations and, and illegal things. We're not to have communion or partnership is, is the word in the Greek. Not to have partnership with those things that are shady or destitute of light, translated darkness. Paul continues that we're not to have concord with Belial. Belial being obviously Satan. We're not to have agreement or the word infers harmony of mind. There should be no harmony of mind with Satan. It's that obvious. And Paul's great at painting these word pictures. Nor part with infidels. Part, not having a portion or a province. And the Jews would understand this. When they came into the promised land, you were not to have any 
you were to take over and not allow any of them to remain. That was your portion. They should not have a portion with you, these outsiders. But the infidels are those that are not just sinners or those that are not yet believing. These are those that are disbelieving, that are against believing in Christ. And then what agreements has the temple of God with idols? Focusing on our worship. That we should have, and the word agreement literally means to deposition or to lay down in front of, as if in worship. To not lay down in worship in front of idols or those things that obviously are, are an image for worship or that we have exalted above God. So these verses are not telling us to come out from people so much as from ideology and worldviews and systems of belief that are out there. In fact, we know that Jesus Christ himself in, in Luke 7 talks about that, that his, his reputation was known that he was a friend of publicans and sinners. He didn't distance himself from these people. He actually went to these people with the gospel, with the truth, with grace, with love, and didn't separate himself from them. But yet they would typically be called unclean, and even those that were physically unclean like lepers, he did not distance himself from. If that's what to be unclean meant, or to distance ourselves from the unclean. So then what separates us? What sets us apart from these things? Apostle Paul gives it right here in, in this verse. What does he say? Righteousness. Light, Christ, beliefs, our worship. This is what sets us apart as his people. The righteousness that he gives us. The light that he has put in us. Christ that dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. The beliefs that we have and the worship that we do. This is what Paul is saying. This is what separates you. Because you are these things, you need to come out from unrighteousness, from darkness, from Belial, from those that are disbelieving, from idols. Come out from these things and be separate. And don't touch those things because those are unclean. So then maybe we're to be set apart because we're just peculiar. Because in many ways we are peculiar, depending which definition you use. We're more peculiar than, than other things. But when Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. What do these terms actually mean? Again, it's one of those things that we think we know it, but, but we really actually haven't ever studied it or been taught it. And when, when we do, it's fascinating what Peter was trying to teach us about being set apart and being peculiar. The word chosen means to be selected, to be the favorite and generation means offspring. Who up until this point in Peter's, in the teachings, who was the favorite offspring of God? Jews. Do you realize what Peter's saying here to those that were Jews and to Gentiles? You as Christians have now become the favorite selected offspring of God. That's awesome. That's incredible. That sets us apart that we have been purchased by God in that sense. And you're a royal priesthood. In Jewish history, can you recall of anyone that was a priest and a king at the same time? 
Prior to the kingship, Melchizedek was the only one who was then referred to as the pre-incarnate Christ. Aside from that, did that ever happen? No, because kings didn't come from priest's line and priests didn't come from king's line. God made them distinctly separate and set apart. However, as Christians, we have now been brought together and we are now kings and priests. As a matter of fact, Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 6 God hath made us kings and priests unto himself. And even back in Exodus, we see an allusion to that in Moses, where he says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. This is special. This sets us apart from everything else in history, in God's story. We are a royal priesthood, kings and priests together. You're also a holy nation. You're sacred, you're pure, you're consecrated. But the word nation is not referring to the nation of Israel. The word nation actually refers to a foreign, non-Jewish tribe. God is saying, you're not just the holy nation that I said back in Exodus 19, in the same verse where it says the kingdom of a priest, it also says a holy nation, because Apostle Peter was referring to that text in Exodus 19. But he's saying, not just are you a holy nation of Jews, You are now a holy nation separate from Jews, set apart from Jews, because you are my special people. They have rejected me. You have not. That sets us apart. And peculiar people. Peculiar doesn't mean weird. It doesn't mean anything. You are purchased. Peculiar is a purchased possession. God has bought us, and we are his. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles always referred to themselves as, as servants or slaves of Christ because he bought us by his precious blood. That's what sets us apart. But why are we to be set apart? If that's us, and God says even in Psalms that the Lord has set apart the godly unto himself, if that's what set apart is, why? Why does he set us apart that way? The verse goes on, to show forth, to publish, to celebrate the praises, the virtue, the valor, the excellence of Jesus Christ. To celebrate and praise and show forth Jesus Christ, who called us out of darkness, out of that shadiness, out of that destitute of light position into his marvelous, that which can be stood at in awe and wonder. Much like that star of Bethlehem that that they saw and just, could do nothing else but stand in awe and wonder of of what is this? That light is what draws us. So if we summarize what it means to be set apart, who sets us apart? We're set apart by God. God sets us apart. We don't set ourselves apart, at least not scripturally. God sets us apart because we have been purchased by him. And then why are we set apart? We're set apart for God. God sets us apart for himself. That's what Psalm 4 just said. And in what ways does he call us to be set apart? We've already talked about the first one. We are his possession. So we're set apart that way. We're also set apart in the practice, in how we live our lives as Christians. Third, we're also set apart in what we say, our profession. And fourthly, we're set apart in what we live for, our purpose. Those are the four areas that I could come up with that and started with P that talks about, that scripture talks about why we're set apart. 
and how we're set apart and why we're set apart. So let's take an example of that because I believe we have been set apart as Christians today for spiritual warfare. David, little David in, in, with the story of Goliath, David was God's chosen, his anointed, his purchased, his possession. His life was characterized by faith, courage, and obedience. That was the practice of his life. The Psalms are filled with not just his professions of praise and professions of, uh, and confessions, um, but, but he was a voice of truth in a world that was full of lies. He was constantly pointing to God. That was his profession. And if we look at his purpose, it was to confront the enemy, to further the kingdom, and to lay a foundation for future generations. And is that not our same purpose today? To confront the enemy, to further the kingdom, and to lay a foundation for future generations. But unlike David, we're not just facing one giant. It's not just one physical giant. We're facing many giants. And Ephesians, Paul says that, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness. But, but what are those? What are those things that we're fighting against? We look at it, in, it within our, our culture. The lies and the deception that our culture is bombarding us with are incredible. The carnality, the idolatry that's going on. And, and we look in condemnation upon those in, in Old Testament times and how could they bow down to a physical idol? Well, we're just bowing down to other idols and, and we don't even know it because we've been so deceived by our culture. The apathy and, and all about self. And yet, Apostle Paul tells Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that's warring entangles himself or gets entwined or involved with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. When we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do you realize the gravity of what that means? That's, that's powerful. That, that's pretty incredible if we want his kingdom to come. And if we do, what is the kingdom that we're working to to set apart. John Stott said, if the church realistically accepted Jesus' standards and views and lived by them, it would be the alternative society he he had always intended it to be and would offer to the world an authentic Christian counterculture. Do we believe that? And if we do, what are we doing about that? What does it mean to be counterculture? What is that term? A counterculture is a culture with beliefs, values, lifestyles, or purposes that are very different from, and usually in opposition to, those most accepted by the rest of society. That's what it means to be countercultural. The world's culture says everything is about you. You promote yourself, you pleasure yourself, you preserve yourself, you praise yourself, you prefer yourself over others. Everything is about you. You do it all. And it's all about you. Everything revolves around you. Look at every aspect of society and you're going to see it screaming this. A biblical counterculture, on the other hand, one that is very different from and in opposition to that, says it's not about you, actually. You need to deny yourself. You need to put yourself to death. You need to take up your cross. 
You need to esteem others. You need to consider one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, stand up for the oppressed, sacrifice yourself. It's not about you. It's all about him. So in possession, I think all Christians are countercultural because we have been purchased by God. We are citizens of heaven, not of earth. We're strangers and pilgrims. So we get that part about being countercultural. And I think all Christians obviously are that. Many Christians are countercultural in the practice of their lives. There are some that are not so much and have kind of gone the way of the world and tried to blend in more with the world than they do with Christ. And some Christians feel equipped to be a voice of truth in a world of lies. And there's a few Christians that prioritize and pursue kingdom purposes for their lives. Where are we in that delineation? Unfortunately, we can't, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't see that the word all applies to every one of those four statements. But it's supposed to. That's what it means to be set apart and to be kind of countercultural. But obviously, standing up and speaking out in the culture we live in is not really encouraged. 1,500 years ago, Plato said this, No one is more hated than he who speaks the truth. But we don't want to be hated, right? Christians aren't supposed to be hated. We're supposed to be loved. We're loving. We're supposed to be loved back. In an article just uh, last year, actually, these two gentlemen says that there's a movement arising to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. And make no mistake, we are living in an increasingly offense culture. In that same article, they said, a claim that someone's words are offensive is not just an expression of one's own subjective feelings of offendedness. It is rather a public charge that the speaker has done something objectively wrong. Do you see that switch that's happening in our culture? From something that's subjective to something that now is determined to be objective. During the 2014-2015 school year, the deans and department chairs at the 10 University of California system schools were presented by administrators at faculty leader training sessions with examples of terms that that, that are thought to cause discomfort or give offense. The list of offensive statements included two that are pretty extreme. One is, this statement is deemed now offensive. America is a land of opportunity. Another one, for those of you who are in business, hiring and, and whatnot of different people, an offensive statement is that I believe the most qualified person should get the job. It's scary, because this is the lies that are coming to us. And are we speaking up and standing up against those? And it's tough because this idea of being hated as a Christian or being called an enemy seems out of sync with our touchy-feely Mr. Christian nice guy church culture. And in the name of offense, this I'm offended has become a trump card not only in the world, but in the church. We're so so afraid, well, I can't step on somebody's toes. I, I can't say that because... Well, I can't address my brother who's sinning because, well, I might offend him. Really? Since when? We're so afraid of saying anything that someone might take the wrong way, so we just won't say anything, and we'll just sit quietly in the pew and just mind our own business. And that's setting us apart, at least in our own minds. 
James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship, fondness of the world is enmity, is hostility. It's a reason for opposition from God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the question that should be ringing in our minds is, who's our friend and who's our enemy? Because you can't have a friend and the enemy in the same person. God is our friend or God is our enemy. The world is our friend or the world is our enemy. Now, does that mean we're separate from all of those people in the world? No, the world system, the values that are there, all of those things that the world subscribes to. So when we think about from a, a counter counterculture, I think I just blew the microphone out. I'll give it a couple seconds. To... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> well, it's kicking back on, maybe. Hello? My C's are a little too harsh. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, I'll keep going, and when it catches, it catches. Um, so what are we being called to counter? Oh, we're back on. What are we being called to counter? Those issues, those systems, those worldviews that are about my personal preference. And that's what all of those are. What do I feel like? I feel like a woman today. I feel like this. I feel like that. I feel I should be able to practice whatever I want to do. Or those things that say human life doesn't matter. We don't need to worry about that. You just worry about yourself. As long as you're good, as long as you're happy, as long as you're healthy, don't worry about it. Not your problem. Or maybe the things that are going on in the world around us that are emphasizing other things. My race, my agenda, my everything is more supreme and more important than everything else. In any of these things, though, it requires us as Christians to be culturally literate about those things. How do any of us know how to address the gay agenda? I mean, I think it's absolutely incredible that this month and I, this, this year at camp, and I have to plug my brother's forum, that we have a forum about this cultural issue that I would venture to say 98% of us are ignorant of. How can we stand up and be a voice of truth for God when we know nothing of the subject? Instead, we set ourselves apart from the gays and say, they're horrible, they're sinners, they're terrible, they're going to hell. But we sit in our comfortable pews saying we're set apart from them. That's not being set apart. That's not being separate either. That's being arrogant, and that's being prideful, and it's certainly not being Christ-like. But again, not just being culturally literate. There's a lot of Christians out there that want to be so culturally literate that they forget it's important to be biblically literate at the same time. And so they get all chummy-chummy with all the world and change and adapt Scripture because God is an all-loving God, and we just have to love these people and accept them as they are. No, that's not what Scripture says. So it's this balance between culturally literate and biblically literate at the same time. That's what's going to set us apart. That's what's going to give us a counterculture to the world. And we have to do it consistently, compassionately, and courageously. Mordecai said to Esther, don't think yourself that you're going to be safe in the king's palace and escape more than all of the rest of your Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. Who knows if you didn't come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has put us here for a purpose. The purpose is for such a time as this. We're here living in this culture, in this time, in these issues, so that we can speak to them with the voice of God. But we can't do it when we're set apart from everything and not involved in those things. Oh, maybe our volume isn't going to work. World by rampant immorality. 130,000 babies were aborted today. Sex trafficking, a $58 billion industry worldwide. Some cultures abusing distinctions between male and female, other cultures ignoring distinctions between male and female. Over a billion people live and die in desperate poverty. Though I would like to insulate myself from these statistics, they represent realities. James says, if there's no mercy in your life toward the orphan and the widow, if you're living according to the ways of this world, and if you don't have a tight rein on your tongue, your religion is a sham. It's worthless. We must speak clearly and biblically and boldly on these things. A global, God-exalting, passionate idealism is exactly what is needed in the Church of Christ today. You can't know this King and be silent about this King. We're compelled to live out our faith in Him, to apply our convictions from Him in every facet of our lives. It may cost us at work. It may cost us in our community. It may cost us according to government. But we obey Christ regardless of what it costs because we fear God more than we fear men. Let's live differently in the world around us. Let's turn things upside down because we want His gospel to spread to the nation. We want His glory more than we want life itself. Does that characterize our set-apartness? Oops. Are we ready to turn the world upside down by our set-apartness? We have been chosen and set apart by God to impact the world around us. That's why God called us. He didn't call us to sit in a life of ease and comfort. And yet that's what over 90% of Christians do in North America. This is not what we were called to do and be, is to make sure that at the end of our life that we were saved, made it through. We're here for a purpose. We're, We're a possession, but we're also to practice it. We're also to profess it, and we're also to have purpose in it. And how do we do this? How are we to live set apart? By courageously sharing our spiritual identity in Christ. Not our identity to the church we go to, our identity to Christ. Because them coming to our church is not going to save them. Them coming to Christ will absolutely save them by living countercultural to the culture that's around us. And that's in so many ways. And that's going to be distinct for every single one of us because we each live in a different community. We work in different environments. We have different friends. We are involved with different people. So we live counterculturally differently and individually, and we should be, by standing up and speaking truth to the deceits and the lies of a secular worldview. This is real tough. I think this is one of the toughest areas, is to be able to stand up and speak truth. Because everything in our, everything in our society 
is all about the suppression of truth. You can't tell me that I'm not feeling like a woman today. You can't tell me that I can't live this way. You can't tell me that everything is about suppressing the truth. And so it requires an extra measure of God's grace and the power of his spirit and our humility and willingness to listen to that, to stand up and speak truth. By prioritizing our lives around the furtherance of God's kingdom. Prioritizing. This is the most important. Not your career, not your job, not your education, not your whatever it is. It has to be around the furtherance of God's kingdom. If, we, if that isn't the primary focus of our lives, then why are we Christians? We are here to make disciples, primarily, above all. If we're not spreading the gospel, then God just calls home. Because it's, it's not just about me. It's about the lost. It's about furthering the kingdom of God. And then by getting involved in alleviating injustice in the world, in the name of Christ. It's easy to try to alleviate justice in the world by signing a check to somewhere. Whatever our causes, great causes. And we say it's in the name of Christ, but it's a real, way, a real nice way to keep our hands clean. I don't have to get too involved. I can just support this cause, and I can support this cause, and I can support this cause, but I really don't roll up my sleeves and get down and dirty and and interact with the people. I'm not sharing that it's from God. I'm trusting that someone's going to, down the line, going to tell them that wherever I sent my money to, especially if it's a Christian organization. But do I really get personally involved in alleviating injustice? There's a family in Canada, just from the Toronto area, that each one of their kids is involved in a different thing. Because that's the, the worldview, the biblical worldview they instilled in their children. One started an organization to fight pornography. Another ch- child started an organization to fight, fight sex trafficking. Another child supported, started a, another organization that, that works at, at um, fighting abortion. That, that's amazing that they have instilled in their children what it means to be set apart in the culture that they live in. But what are we involved in? Personally, collectively as a group of people, and as a denomination, what has set us apart? Or are we set apart? I like that um, thing that was shown at the missionary day, at the end of the missionary presentation, about going all out. Because that's what it is. We're told to go into the world and preach the gospel. I, I read a phrase just to end with. Church begins when the service ends. You get that? Church begins when the service ends. We sometimes think church is about the service. And we all come and we all worship. And we all came to Eastern Camp and we spent a week here. But true commitment to decisions, which we talked about in our classes today, is what are you going to do when you get back home and start to live in the world? Are you going to be set apart? Truly set apart. Not the way you were before camp. The way that God asks you to be set apart. It's a challenge each of us have to take and reflect upon, and pray about, and open ourselves up to God saying, what are the issues? Why have you placed me here? Because I want to do, do your work here. I want to further your kingdom. I want to be the voice of truth in a world of lies. I want to live in a way that is set apart, not for me, 
but it's set apart for you so that others see you, not me. So thank you for your time, um, and hopefully this gives you enough time to get to where you need to go. Actually, I guess any, what time do we have to end, if there's any questions? But 11, okay, that's fine. We'll give you extra time to get to choir, because I know choir doesn't uh, appreciate when it's late.